The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Psalm 25. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we lift up that prayer asking you, guard our souls. Deliver us, shelter us, cover us, protect us. We can come into your presence. You invite us there and we are thankful for that. We can come as was just sung by the blood of the Lamb. We worship you and we ask for still more to worship you over. We ask for your deliverance today, tomorrow, and the next day. We ask you to shelter us today, tomorrow, and the next day. And we ask that in confidence because you are that kind of God. You are a refuge for us, your people. You are a strong defender. Thank you. Lord, we stand before you this morning, stand before your word this morning here gathered in this room, but we also stand with your church around the world. That is, some has met to worship already. Some of it will meet yet a little bit later. We stand in solidarity with them and cry out to you in thanksgiving and in hope, come and deliver. Raise up your arm and fight on our behalf and deliver us. Win for yourself still more people. Win for yourself still more glory. Shelter us. Those of us who live here, those of us who live in in foreign lands that don't enjoy nearly the same peace that we do, shelter them. Teach and guide. And Lord, we come to Your Word this morning hoping for that. To shelter our hearts, to teach us and guide us by Your instruction. We're thankful that you have given us a word and that you have protected it through the centuries. And now we pray, open it before us. Commission your spirit to come here and and to teach us. Lord, you have words here that are thousands of years old. Would you make them live for us and apply to us to shape our thinking about our world today? But we can't just talk about this, Lord, in our own power and in our own wisdom. So I pray, would you send your Spirit? Would you commission Him to come? Would you cause Him to run through this room? And Spirit of God, I pray that you would run through this room and find a resting place in each and every heart here. In my heart and in every single person sitting and listening. Would you, would you come to rest within us? And through the stream of words and the many verses covered this morning, would you cause those that have particular import for each person to strike, to, to turn something within each heart and to affect change? That may be conviction of sin. That may be encouragement amidst great trial. That may be to unlock an intellectual problem that has, that has held someone back. 
Whatever it is, Lord, would you in each individual person cause something different to to happen, to change? You are the Spirit of God. You know each of us intimately. Work in us, I pray. Have your way here in, in this, your church. Exalt Christ among us. Mature us and grow us. It's my prayer this morning. And I pray it for His glory and for our good. Amen. As the Greek philosopher Plato soberly put it, only the dead have seen the end of war. For those of us still alive, war is a reality with which we must contend, for which we must be prepared. Every nation on earth knows this, and so it should come as no surprise to us when we open up the Bible and read about the the ancient country of Israel and see God preparing this people to be a country, that He would address the issue of war. He would give them instruction and guidance to help prepare them for that. It's logical, it's common in every country back then, every country today. So it shouldn't surprise us. And while Deuteronomy chapter 20, what we're going to be looking at today, is in that sense common, ordinary, there are also some things that are not so ordinary, that are unique in this chapter, particularly because of what it points us who live here in this time in in the era of the New Covenant, what it points us to. It sets us on a trajectory thousands of years ago. It sets us on a path that intersects with us today and will teach us, but will teach us some, some interesting and some different things about how we, who also face war, are to be prepared for it and are to go about fighting it. So clearly it has a word for them, preparing them, and it speaks to us this morning as well. So we've been working through the book of Deuteronomy. We've, we've been working through what is really one long speech, and we've come to this section where this type of material is very common, where he's laying out the, the foundations of a nation, giving them over the last several chapters particular laws. He's setting up the civil law code of the country. And we have constantly been wrestling, as we will again this morning, with here is a civil law for a nation that we are not. It's, it's a, a law code for a country that we aren't. So, so how do we take what he said to the old covenant people of God in a particular setting, and how do we move that and understand what is in it that is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness? How do we move that into our setting now today, given the fact that we live post-Messiah? We've wrestled with that frequently, and again we look at that today. That all, in all the scriptures in Deuteronomy and in this text today, looking at the issue of war. And what we're going to find here is encouragement and strengthening and instruction on how and what we fight. So let me read Deuteronomy chapter 20 and read the whole chapter and pass back through it to make sure we understand it before making a couple of larger observations. Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you go out to war against your enemies, and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed the wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down that you may build, build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Verses 1 to 9 all relate to gathering together or mustering an army. Verse 1 begins with an assumption of war. And so right away we should be clear that this passage is not instructing us how to determine if one should or should not go to war. It's assuming that there is war going on. It starts right there. And when they, they go to war and when they see their enemies, Moses says, you see a large and powerful army complete with chariots and cavalry, which Israel frequently, almost always did not have. You go out to war and you realize what they have and there are going to be a lot of good reasons to fear. You, you see them out there and you think, we have infantry and they have infantry and actually more than we have and they have chariots and they have cavalry. There's going to be a lot to be afraid of. And he says to them, 
But you shall not fear, verse 1, for the Lord your God is with you. Who you'll recall is the one who brought you out of Egypt. And when Pharaoh chased you as an unarmed mob, chased you with chariots, how did that go? Do you remember? Do not fear. That Lord is with you. Don't fear. And when they draw near to battle, here's a couple of other unusual things. They're going to see the enemy laid out there before them, but they haven't actually even organized an army yet. They're drawing onto the battlefield. Any military man would look at this and say, this is crazy. You don't go onto a battlefield and then form an army. But they haven't even selected the officers. Down in verse 9, they select the commanders. And here they're going to go through a process of selecting who actually is going to fight on the battlefield. Unusual. But it starts off led not by a king or by a general, but by a priest. All the other nations, they, they frequently brought their priests onto the battlefield with their idols so as to kind of invite the, their God's blessing. But here the priest takes the primary position of giving the pep talk, if you will. And in verse 3, he essentially repeats what was said in verse 1. You see the enemy out there. Do not fear. Don't, don't be faint-hearted. Don't be in dread or in panic of them. Because the Lord your God, emphasis on, on He Himself, He is the one who will fight for you and will give you the victory. He's setting up God as a champion. Sometimes armies fought like this. Think of David and Goliath. The two armies sit opposite each other and they pick a champion. And they move to the middle and it's one-on-one -on -one combat. Well, who's the champion of the armies of Israel? The Lord. He Himself will fight for you. So don't fear. In fact, He is so much the champion of the army, so much the leader, that not only do we not need a very organized army, we don't even need a very big army. We're outnumbered. Let's start sending people home. And He walks through these three categories. The category of, of home and vineyard and new wife which are not random categories. They're all related to, for, for a man in that time, they're all related to what it would mean for him to become a, a stakeholder in the promised rest of God. He's giving them this land, moving them in, and for him to have a house, a livelihood, and a family, now he has arrived. He has himself acquired the rest. And God's saying that if somehow or another you haven't yet acquired the rest, you don't have your own piece of property with a livelihood and a family, then go. Go experience that. And He sends them off. Frankly, we don't need you. We have the Lord our God. And they keep, they keep speaking, sending off the fearful ones again. And then they gather and organize an army with the selection of officers. That's how they form a fighting force. Unusual. Verses then 10 to 20 give some instruction about how to wage war. And again, there's an assumption going on here. An assumption of an offensive war. Which creates a certain slant to the passage. Now, it's important to understand a couple of things here. Historically, Israel almost always fought defensive wars, trying to de defend the land from outside invaders. And in no way whatsoever is God establishing some sort of a spread the religion by the sword sort of mentality here. They never converted anybody that they conquered to Judaism. 
They never went out and, and made war and converted people to make them temple worshipers. But it does create a slant on the passage. It's not the people of God holed up in a fortress trying to hold off the nations. It's going out. It's going to become important a little later. They're going out. They will go and take foreign cities. It's spreading. They're going to be conquerors first of cities in lands that are far away from the promised land. And they are first to approach them with peace. To offer them a peace covenant. Very similar to what God has made with His own people. And if they accept it, then there will be peace and they will be servants of the servants of the Lord. They offer them peace. But if they don't want peace, then it's war. And one way or the other, notice the assumption again, when the Lord gives you the city, one way or the other, every knee will bow. Either through peace in the beginning or through war and judgment at the end. Verses 16 to 18. And, and following that is the, the countries that are in the land that they're going to occupy. Those they are to utterly wipe out. We've seen this a few times before already. There's two reasons that he has his people utterly wipe out every living thing totally destroyed, which kind of sits a little rough with us today. There are two reasons he does that. We've talked about this before. One in the text, because that will constitute a, a living and abiding temptation to his people, inviting them to follow in all these abominable practices. It's in verse 18. Inviting them to, to sin and to turn away from God and follow all the idols of the nation and so destroy themselves. So to protect them from that, he graciously says, eliminate them. And it's time to eliminate them for the second reason. This is actually a judgment of God. If you look back in the book of Genesis and realize, back then God promised to give this land to Abraham and his descendants, but He said, not yet, Abraham. Because the sin of the people who lives there is not yet full. There are 400 more years of patience in me. Four more centuries on top of what had already come. Four hundred more years of waiting before the judgment comes. So we sometimes look at this and say, man, that's really cruel. Not realizing how many centuries he patiently waited for change and it never came. And so God finally judged them. God finally, in the end, is a judge. He is patient for a long time. He is long-suffering, but He is not eternally suffering. Judgment comes. And the passage concludes with 19 and 20, an interesting addendum on trees. Related really to the military context here, the trees, the fruit trees, would be an item of the inheritance they're going to receive. They're going to be blessed with fruit trees, so don't tear them down. They're not people. They don't fall under judgment. So don't tear down the fruit trees. Keep them and enjoy them. You will destroy the cities of your enemies. They will fall to you, the last sentence, because the Lord Himself fights for you and will give you the victory. That's the passage. 
Instruction about warfare, how to raise an army, and then how to fight. For the old covenant people of God. So what does that say to us today? We're in a much different spot. And it says something similar, but quite different. Still about warfare, but it's going to be quite different for us. So let me make my main statement here and then unfold it in two sub-statements. Here's the main point for this morning. God is at war. And we should trust Him and fearlessly conquer with Him. God is at war. We should trust Him and fearlessly conquer with Him. I'm going to break that in half and talk first about God and what He's up to in this text and in our world today. First subpoint. God is always fighting. He's at war today, right now. He is always fighting to secure His kingdom and His rest for His people. And I say that as two things, but you must understand they are really one. He is always fighting to secure His kingdom and His rest for His people. And we experience rest under the kingship of Jesus. God is at war always to secure both of those things. Notice how warfare is assumed in this text. Verse 1, when you go to war. 10, when you draw near to the city. When you besiege it. 19, it's going to come up. And he's talking to people who have already fought several wars and are looking right across the river at more warfare to come. War is a reality of life. And obviously in the text... This is not a war of their own human doing. God has set them up to this. God called them to this place that was already occupied with people. And it's clear throughout from the very first part where the priest steps up as a representative of God. The priest is the leader of the people. And he promises them that God is the one who is your champion. And you pass through and see in verse after verse, the Lord is with you who brought you out of Egypt. The Lord goes to fight for you in verse 14. 13, the Lord gives the city into your hands. 14, He has given it. 16, He will give the land of rest. He's doing it. He's fighting. He's the champion. It is His battle. He sends them out. He's the one fighting. He's the one who gives the victory. Who gives the land of rest. And and really, that concept of rest is at the center of His war plan. Picture this as as like concentric circles. What does he do in the centermost part? He wipes it totally clean and puts his people in there. That's his kingdom. And he he is bent on securing his reign over that kingdom. And so he wipes out all possible contenders for the throne. He removes all idolatry. That's his kingdom. And then he establishes concentric circles, the cities that are outside of that land. And brings them under his control too as a buffer zone around the place where his people live. He's protecting them. Securing for them rest. If you don't, and if you haven't experienced the rest, go and experience it. He wants them to have that and to be protected from any outside force that might try to take it away. He's fighting to secure his kingdom and his rest for his people. The text, that's for them. What does that mean for us? Well, think about this. When the new covenant gets enacted, 
the nature of the covenant people changes dramatically. We are no longer, we we talked about this, we are no longer an ethnic people. We are no longer a geographically defined people, nor a civilly defined people. Hopefully we are a civil people. We are not defined as a civil entity. And when that changes, what that means is that we don't have a nation state. There is no nation of the people of God to be defended. There are no such things as enemy cities anymore. We live in every city. We have spread out across all of the globe and there is no longer a physical us and them. We live in this country. You live in that country. We're going to take your city from you. That, that's all changed. There is no physical kingdom anymore to be physically defended. But he does have a spiritual kingdom. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within in the individual human heart. And like a seed, it is growing as more and more people's hearts are conquered by the Spirit of God. Which is why Paul would say in Ephesians 6, our struggle, our battle, our war, the assumption that there is a war, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not a physical battle anymore. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, which are not governmental authorities, they're spirit beings, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a war going on every single minute of every single day. But it's not against flesh and blood. It's assumed by the Bible. It began in Genesis chapter 3. A great cosmic struggle is underway to determine who will reign over the creation. Who will reign over everything made? Who will reign over this kingdom that God has claimed as His own, but some have rebelled against and have attempted to steal from Him? That is a question that is right now hanging out there to see whose glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. To see who will own the individual hearts of these ones made in the image of God. The prize. Satan and other angels who became demons, they fell and they have taken up arms against this king. And the rebellion has not been put down yet. It rages every single minute. And those enemies, they fight back, you realize. Revelation chapter 12, and realize much of Revelation uses warfare imagery because this is a war. Revelation chapter 12 talks about how Satan is furious with the people of God and makes war on them. 1 Peter 2.11 talks about the passions of the flesh that war against your soul. You have an enemy and he is fighting back. 
gloriously, God Himself is also fighting to conquer those enemies, to vanquish them, and to rescue His people from their influence forever. He is bent on securing His kingdom and securing His rest for you. He will fully purge evil from this world one day. But what, what I hope to impress on you and remind you of, it's not something you intellectually already know, but what I hope to impress on you is that there is a war going on. A spiritual war. And you are in it every moment of every day. Sometimes we, we think of spiritual warfare as spooky demonic stuff. You know, we, sometimes we have a conversation and we, we wonder, you know, I got sick and I got in a car accident and I had a really bad dream last night. I wonder if there's some spiritual warfare involved in that. That's how we mean it. We mean it like really unusual, extreme stuff. Most spiritual warfare looks like this. You're a teenager. You got up this morning. You walk into the bathroom. You start brushing your hair and your brother walks by and makes a smart comment. That's the battle right there. The battle is joined right there in your bathroom because two warriors rise up to see who will reign over your heart. Teenage girl, who will it be? It's common as the day is long. The battle is fought right there in your heart, in your bathroom, contending for God's kingdom in your heart and contending for your rest in Him. Or not. The kingdom of darkness in your heart and your lack of rest in Him. The battle's fought right there. Who's going to win it? That's... That question is multiplied a thousand times in every one of our days with no spooky stuff involved at all. I was reading yesterday, yesterday the day before, an online story about some of the fighting going on in Afghanistan. And they were tracking this one Marine unit in this city you've been reading about this, this certain battle going on in Afghanistan. They're tracking this one Marine unit and the headline was War the Old-Fashioned Way. They were contrasting these guys with some of the stuff going on in Iraq. And I've never been in either place, but what they were saying in the story is that a lot of the fighting in Iraq is like day trips out of an air-conditioned compound. Travel out, people are killed by roadside bombs, you travel back and eat at McDonald's and you live in an air-conditioned hut. A lot of times, that's what's been going on in Iraq. Afghanistan and this place, totally different. That was the point of the story. War the old-fashioned way. Dirty. Violent. You never take your helmet off. You never take your flak jacket off. They sit down to eat, and it's interrupted by a battle. They come back to it, interrupted again the next day. They said, we've been here for a week or so. We haven't been out of combat yet. Constant. I think most of us think we're in Iraq. We actually live in Afghanistan. You can hold the analogy there. Most of us think we can retreat to our compound 
where it's air-conditioned and completely safe. And when we step out into some other areas, there is danger for sure, and people die for sure. But we come back, we're home, and you never realize you live in Afghanistan. You're, You're always on a battlefield. And that battle is fought in your bathroom and in your living room when your spouse makes a comment to you in the basement, in your cubicle at work, You live in a battle over your soul. The the conflict is who will own you? Who will reign over your heart? And will you find rest or not? Because you cannot find rest apart from the reign of the King. I I realize that many of us know this. I I suspect that I haven't said anything that a Christian in this room doesn't already know. But I don't think that we live it. I, I interact with many people. And sometimes, sometimes as I'm interacting with a person, I find there is a, a, a profound letting down of the guard. And you don't realize, that when, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, when Paul talks about taking every thought captive, he's using warfare language. Back up a verse or two, and he says, we don't fight with fleshly weapons, Fight. He assumes we have a fight. We don't fight with fleshly weapons, but we have divine power from the God who is warring for us. We have divine power to tear down every argument and every lofty thought that lifts itself up against Christ. We take every captive, we take every thought captive. That's his context. And I interact with people who are not taking every thought captive, who are not fighting. who are letting stuff just come in and take up residence. Uncontested. Never resisted. Never grabbed hold of and put before the Word of God and said, is that true? I have a divine argument right here that will throw that down. It's not true. And I interact with people. Always negative. Always with a complaint or a problem. Contrarian in the negative sense. It's possible to be contrarian in a positive sense, to get people to think outside of the box. But, but somebody who says that the sky is black just because I said it's white is contrarian in a negative sense. Influence to think that everybody's against you, that it's all going poorly. And the fact that you don't live in the joy of the Lord should tell you something. You're not experiencing the rest, which means you're not experiencing the rain. They come together. You can't get one without the other. Is it you? You you know that you're in a battle. Are you fighting? Are you taking every thought captive? forcibly submitting it to the truth.
And at that point, I'm beginning to cross over into the second observation. Because the first observation is about what God is doing. How God is fighting this battle. He is contending for you. He has given His Word and He has given His Spirit. And He is about securing His kingdom. But I've already begun to cross over into, we are to be fighting also. That's the second observation. Turns to address us, telling us what we are to do and critically how we are to do it. Because if it only tells you what you're supposed to do, it just crushes you. It also tells you how. Here's the second observation. Trust God and fearlessly conquer by proclaiming the gospel. Trust God and fearlessly conquer by proclaiming the gospel. Clearly the whole passage assumes that the people of God are fighting. God is fighting, but they're in the army. Let's talk about an army here. We are at war and we must stand. We must engage. We must conquer. It involves us fighting. And three times the text emphasizes fearlessness. Verses 1 and 3, nearly identical statements. I mean, a few words that are different, but the same basic point. Do not fear. Do not dread. Do not be in panic. Do not be faint-hearted. And then later when they dismiss the faint-hearted men so that they won't corrupt everybody else. Three times. Fearlessness. Fight at peace. Fight content. Fight confidently. Fight fearlessly. How does that come about? It tells us right in the text. Both times, one and three, the command is backed up with some logic. You shall not be afraid of them for... This is the reasoning. You shall not be afraid of them because the Lord your God is with you. Verse three, same thing. For the Lord your God... He is the one who goes to fight before you. He is the one who gives you victory. We we are commanded we must fight fearlessly and gloriously, though that fearlessness is grounded in something outside of me. That's important. Because at the point of fear, what's going on when you fear is that you are looking at the situation in front of you You're kind of weighing the facts and you have determined that your own resources are likely inadequate. You don't fear where you think you have it under control. You fear where you don't. And you realize that. And so if God's going to help us with fear, He's got to point us outside of us. And He does. He points us to Himself. Don't fear because I'm there. Because of me. I am the one who goes before you to fight. I'm the one. Remember Egypt. He keeps dropping that in the text. This is one speech. The number of times he keeps reminding them about Egypt would get a little bit redundant. Pedantic, I think, is the word. But he keeps dropping that in there because he wants to keep them. Remember Egypt? That's me. I'm the one who rained plagues on Egypt parted the Red Sea and brought you out, fed you in the wilderness. That's me. What do you have to fear? I'm there. 
He points us beyond our own resources to Him Himself who is a mighty warrior. He does the same thing for us. We don't look back at Egypt. We don't, we don't find any security in God's deliverance of us from Egypt. He didn't bring us out of Egypt. But that whole thing, that whole thing is picturing, typifying a greater reality. A spiritual deliverance that He has worked in your life if you're a Christian. Bringing His people out of slavery by the blood of a slain Passover lamb. What is that? That's the cross. So He keeps dropping that into your life to remind you, do you see the cross? Don't fear because I am going with you before you to fight. And I'm the one who fought for you at the cross. You remember that? What do you see of me there? What do you see of God at the cross? You see incredible wisdom. Who would have ever dreamed up such a thing? That God would become man? That then God, man, would be killed on a cross by His subjects? Michael Card is a great line in a song. Who ever thought of a high priest who would sacrifice himself? Nobody. But God. And the power involved in that. Not just the power to raise Him again from the dead, though that is remarkable. The power that breaks the hold that sin has on us human beings. There is spiritual power in the cross that satisfies the wrath of God and breaks my slavery to sin. That is remarkable power. And you see love there, don't you? Why would He do such a thing for those who hate Him? Love. For you, His beloved one. You look at the cross and you see Him. You see many aspects of His character. And He says, that's me, the one who stands beside you. So don't be afraid. I fight for you. I will give you the victory. He is a mighty warrior. You know this. Do you believe it? Do you fight with that truth? The Gospel. It's how He conquers, you know. He doesn't conquer with with muscle or with blade. He conquers with the Gospel. The New Testament tells us, Colossians 2, these, these spiritual powers, how did He overthrow them? He triumphed over them in the cross. Revelation 12 again. And I wasn't quite sure. I couldn't catch the lyrics of the song. This might have been sung this morning by the choir. Revelation 12, verse 11. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony is how we conquer. It's the Gospel. Conquering happens by the Gospel, which means you've got to fight with the Gospel. You've got to fight by proclaiming the Gospel. 
to yourself first in the bathroom where the battle is joined. That teenager standing right there, brother makes a comment. What does she do? What do you do? Do you preach to yourself? Okay, that was uncalled for. That was offensive. That was sin. However, I am in Christ. My security and my identity is not found in what my brother thinks of my hair. Or my outfit. Or my breath. Or whatever. My security and my identity is found in Christ. In whom I stand. Who I represent. The one who reigns over me. And my response to Him will be grace. That's preaching the Gospel in a second to yourself. Where the battle is being fought in your heart in the bathroom. You all know the Gospel. Do you preach it? The adults among us here. Married people among us here. Marriage is a huge battleground for this. I mean, the war is fought in your heart and marriage is one place that brings it out, isn't it? Do you fight to conquer not your spouse who is flesh and blood and not the enemy? Do you fight in your marriage to conquer the real enemy, sin and Satan, with the Gospel? Fearlessly proclaiming it to yourself. Your spouse says something incredibly hurtful to you. How do you respond to that? you go to war against him or her? Or do you go to war in your heart against the enemy? Preaching to yourself, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from him who walks uprightly. Do you preach that to yourself? Or... I deserve more than that. That was unjust. I will not stand for that. And if I do, the fear is, I will become a doormat. I will be diminished. I will feel and look terrible in his eyes, in the kid's eyes, perhaps in the neighbor's eyes. I better fight and stand against that. I am not saying that there's stuff that should not be confronted in marriage, okay? But the, the issue is this. Or do you respond in love? You can speak the truth in love. And you can only do that if you have conquered the enemy who is warring for your soul inside. And you can only conquer him by proclaiming the gospel to yourself. Do you? Do you? And silence is no evidence that you do. Many of us are just furious in silence. Do you rest inside? And that only comes if the king reigns. You have to fight. He's fighting, but you have to fight. And you can do that fearlessly, not fearing what you'll lose if you don't defend yourself. You can do that fearlessly if you realize He is my champion. He has already shown me wonders at the cross. And He will continue to bestow on me favor and honor and protect me and provide for me and love me.
He will. He will give me that victory. You must fight. But there's one other aspect that I need to touch on here briefly. I've been emphasizing fear fighting in the heart in us, but there's one other aspect the passage gives us with the slant towards the going out. There are other people out there to be conquered. And I say that carefully, hoping that by this point you understand the language. There are other people to be conquered in peace by the Gospel brought under the reign of the King to experience His rest. And the, the slant of the passages, the people of God are on their front foot, are, are, are leaning forward rather than holding the gate shut. They're moving out. And Revelation talks about conquering. It not only means standing on the defensive and surviving. You know, every church in Revelation, all seven of them you read through, they all are commended for conquering by holding fast to the faith as they die. But there's more to it than just the defense. There's also a witness that that makes to the world. And we, we have to see, we have a responsibility, a calling to extend the kingdom of God. That involves risk. Which is why we need to fight against fear. We have to be mindful of other people out there. And to not love our lives so much that we will not risk and will not give it up for the sake of others. He is a conquering, going, spreading God, and He expects us to be also. And that happens by the Gospel. Not by the sword. It never has. Not today either. So at the end here, I have to ask you, Are you afraid of engaging with others? Are you afraid of what it will cost you or what it might cost you if you step out and take to them the gospel and offer them peace? We'll all accept it by no means. It's okay. God will take care of that. But we have to extend it. Are you afraid of that? Or are you engaged in it? We must fearlessly fight with Him by proclaiming the Gospel. He is at war. We must trust Him and fight with Him also. Let me pray. Father, I pray that You would move in the midst of us in each individual heart here and that You would speak the particular thing that needs to be spoken. Where we find ourselves fighting other people, would You point that out? 
where we find ourselves shying away from other people, not carrying the gospel to them. Would you point that out? Where we find ourselves complaining people, not taking every thought captive, not fighting the war that's going on inside of us by the gospel. Would you point that out? And over all of that, Lord, would you shine, not just in in a momentary point or a little prick of conscience, but would you shine over all of that in clear and compelling ways. You, a God who is great and glorious and good, goes before us, fights for us, gives us the victory, and therefore relieves us from fear. Help us with that. Give us eyes to see that, to see you. I thank you for it, Lord. We are in a war, and I thank you for the fact that we have a great warrior. Cause us to trust him and walk with him. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.